Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're going to get started, and uh, this morning we are focusing our attention on Genesis uh, chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 25, and then we're going to cover uh, the rest of chapter 5, all of chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 32. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. And if you're uh, new to the Bible uh, and no, don't quite know your way around it yet, um, in the Bible, the paper Bible underneath the chair in front of you, it's on page two. Right, it's the first book of the Bible, uh, so it should be fairly um, easy to find. Uh, I want to make sure that you know where we are. And if you're new to church, or maybe you haven't been to church in a long time, um, the typical church service is that we uh, we gather for prayer and we worship together, we sing, uh, we get to know each other and and encourage each other as best as we can, and bear each other's burdens, and grieve with those who grieve, and rejoice with those who rejoice, and do what we call body life or fellowship, where we just uh, really try to minister to one another. And uh, pray for each other and encourage each other. And then at this point in the in the service, we uh, we focus our attention on on God's word and hear a message uh, out of a passage. And at this particular church, uh, we don't normally preach topically. I would say maybe um, maybe ten percent of the sermons that you'll hear at Ridgeline are topical. Christmas, Easter, uh, maybe a topical. Last week was topical on Ephesians chapter six. But even when we preach topically, we preach expositionally, expository, exegetical, all those big words. We try to go verse by verse through a book of the Bible or through a section. And and this summer we chose Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So that's where we are today in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 32. You should be there by now. I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll get started into our passage. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together uh, today to hear your word, uh, to sing, to pray, and to uh, to seek your face together as a congregation, as a people that you have called out of the world uh, into uh, your family, adopted us, uh, given us an inheritance, uh, a deposit of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that uh, deposit, that inheritance. And we, we praise you for all your goodness and the gifts that you give us, forgiveness and mercy. Uh, your mercies are new every morning, and, and we worship you for your hesed, your faithfulness, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. And we pray today that you would use your word to challenge us and to change us, and to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that you would deliver us uh, from temptation and from the evil one. As many people in our congregation have experienced uh, a really difficult few weeks of uh, temptation and difficulty and a spiritual attack, and we pray that you might bring us out of that and uh, into uh, a period, a season of, of peace and victory and growth, and, and that we may minister well uh, before you. Use your word today to encourage us and to strengthen us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this is a, uh, kind of a part two. Two weeks ago, we covered Cain. Uh, you remember Cain? He killed his brother Abel. And, uh, and Cain, uh, the previous sermon two weeks ago from Genesis was that Cain and his line was traced out from um, Adam uh, down through seven generations. And that group of people, that line, that genealogy, uh, that 1,500-year period developed into a really wicked, godless society. You remember they uh, 
migrated geographically away from the Lord, away from Eden, away from that entire region. And the entire line of Cain advanced uh, really technologically in the arts and in industry and agriculture. In many ways, they advanced. They built a society called Enoch, but they also advanced in lawlessness and godlessness. They developed into a violent society. Uh, one where the justice of God was not uh, honored. They blew off the marriage covenant and introduced polygamous relationships. Warren Wearsby points out that this section of Genesis, just that brief line, covers 1,500 years of human history, years that are overshadowed by sin and sorrow in that period. I, I wondered what the population of the earth was at that time. And, and based on really... Uh, the long life and the environmental uh, factors, uh, Earth could have been as populous as 5 billion people at that time. Uh, and so that's a lot of evil and wickedness by the time we get to the end of chapter 5. It's a lot of people. We don't know that for certain. Uh, but I want you to see a populated Earth that is filled with this line of Cain and this uh, this wickedness. Now in today's section, though, we're tracing another line of people from Adam. And this line of people uh, is uh, starts with Seth. Uh, Seth from Adam will cover ten generations, and it has an altogether different tone. And I, I think you're going to see that uh, as we read the text. You're going to see that uh, where Cain's line, there was really no mention of honoring God or fearing God or calling on God's name or uh, any sort of indication that there was any sort of God-centeredness or seeking God in their life. I think you're going to see the difference in Seth's line. You're going to see the Lord and his activity. You're going to see that he's very active in the line of Seth and his descendants. Uh, you're going to see evidence of people who fear God, and I think that we can be encouraged by that. The text is kind of a genealogical record, and I know that many of you, if you raise your hand, it's your favorite thing to read in the Bible, or those long sections of genealogy. I know that none of you ever skip that or really rush through that. Uh, it's tough sledding at times when you get to Numbers and, and other books like that where it's just so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to get a grasp on those. Uh, but I want you to um, to see that it's important that uh, in the long redemptive chain that leads to Jesus, there are all these individuals that are faithful links along this course leading to Jesus. And you're also going to read many of these names in the genealogical record uh, of Jesus in Matthew and in, and in Luke chapter 3. All right, let's get into our text. We're going to start at uh, Genesis 4.25 and, uh, and verse 26, and, and I'll make a few comments along the way. Verse 25 of chapter 4 says that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's just pause here for a second. With the birth of Seth brought a new hope for grieving Adam and Eve. Right? Abel had been murdered. Cain had fled from uh, the presence of the Lord and uh, really had no remorse indicated, no apologies to his extended family, to his 
certainly other siblings to his parents. He just left with a mark on himself that said, if anybody tries to hurt him, they would be avenged. So the birth of Seth brought new hope after the death of Abel. And this is a thread that I want you to be aware of because throughout Scripture, the birth of a new son uh, carries something extra. The birth of any child carries extreme value and importance. But based on the biblical promise in Genesis 3.15, that once the curse of sin was introduced, that there was the promise from God that there would come a child, a male child born of a woman who would come and reverse the curse of sin and would crush the head of the serpent. And so you had to think at this time that that with every new baby son born, there was this hope from his parents and his family that maybe this would be the one. As a matter of fact, there's an indication of that in Adam and Eve's naming of Cain. Uh, the passage actually says in Hebrew, Chad Bird uh, points this out, that uh, if you translate it woodenly or literally, it says that Eve proclaimed, I have um, birthed a man, the Lord. English translators will often insert, with the help of the Lord, but it doesn't read that way in, in, in Hebrew. <clears throat> so there's this, it's not concrete, but there's this idea that Eve might have even thought that Cain would be this one who would reverse this curse of sin. He, he didn't. He was terrible, right? Uh, but Seth now becomes the appointed one after that. But you see this in the Bible often. <clears throat> At the end of the chapter here today, we're going to see that the birth of Noah carries a similar weight, right? His father Lamech says, this one is going to end the curse and he's going to bring us relief and rest from our toil. There's this hope with every baby boy. And it continues right on through the Bible. <clears throat> the birth of Isaac, remember, to Abraham and, and Sarah, they were well advanced in years, uh, in their 90s. <clears throat> and uh, and and. Isaac was born in their old age. Uh, the birth of Joseph carried some uh, some hope of promise for Rachel. Certainly Moses, right? The way he was born and the midwives that spared him and, and put him in a, a, a little makeshift basket and floated him down the river and Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised him. Uh, with each of these significant births of these male-type deliverers, there is an echo and a shadow and a hope of a future Redeemer. Right? And you see in each one of them a Redeemer aspect, right? We're going to see it in Noah in the coming weeks. Uh, one who would be saved through the ark and through the waters. Uh, the birth of Samuel to Hannah. And of course, John the Baptist and his birth from Elizabeth and Zechariah and of course, Jesus with each baby boy born into the world, there's a hope of the fulfillment of the promise given. God made a promise, and they were hoping He would fulfill it in their days. And don't we carry a similar hope? Maybe that God gives us a promise and that we would see it, uh, that we would experience the restoration of this earth and this time. It's that phrase that we uh, often utter, come Lord Jesus, come. All right, Come quickly. Uh, come and... Fulfill your promise to return and to make all things right. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's move forward a little bit and get through, uh, through these three first verses. 
says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. And male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Let's just pause here for a second. If chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 seems like a new start or a reset, it is, right? You picked up on that well. Um, There's a formula all throughout the book of Genesis, and it's called the Toledot formula. I don't speak Hebrew, so I don't know if I'm butchering that or not, but I don't think any of you speak Hebrew either, so um, we'll just call it Toledot. Uh, But it's this formula where it says, these are the generations of so-and-so. And each time you see that phrase, it often starts a brand new section. Uh, or this is the book of the generations of so-and-so. And we saw it in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, these are the generations of Seth. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verses, uh, verse 1, these are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 11.10, Shem. 11.27, Terah to Abraham. And so you can see that it goes from the general population that every time Moses is writing a new section, it's narrowing from the general population down to the family where the Messiah would come. Ultimately, that will come from Judah at the end of Genesis in Jacob's blessing over Judah. He says, the scepter will never depart from you. And then from Judah, we know it's narrowed down even further to to King David, where King David is promised. But from there, uh, we don't know who in the line of David would be the Messiah in those Old Testament period until we, of course, get to Jesus. Verses 4 through 11 says, The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now listen, in previous sermons we've talked about what the environmental conditions would be like for somebody to live for 930 years, right? Uh, We've described that so you can go back and listen online as to the explanation behind that. But we have no reason to doubt the Scripture and and these accounts of these these long years that they lived when you consider the pre-flood world. And of course, we'll get into that in a couple of chapters. In a few weeks, we'll talk about when the great fountains of the deep burst forth at the same time that this sort of vapor canopy be over the atmosphere erupted and and at that point our entire ecosystem planetary ecosystem everything changed with that we'll get into that in a few weeks that's just a, a preview so at this point we know that that adam has lived 930 years uh, and then he died verse 6 when seth had lived 105 years he fathered enosh Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Uh, When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Now we skipped a lot there and we covered a lot of names. In total, there are 15 names mentioned in this entire chapter in the section that we're going through. And, and really four of them are notable for a few uh, reasons. Enoch, Enosh, uh, Seth, and, um, and, and Noah. But let's pause here and, and just sort of pick up with Enosh because there are a few things I want you to see about Enosh. 
You remember in uh, just a few minutes ago we read verse 26 of chapter 4? There was something interesting about Enosh. Uh, what was that? In, in chapter 4, verse 26, when uh, Enosh was born, it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And if you remember that note, that phrase, people calling on the name of the Lord, is in immediately in the context of the line of Cain and this wicked city of Enoch and this polygamous relationship with Lamech where he said, I, I killed a guy, and then he sang a weird song to his two wives and, and made them fear him about killing this young man. And he said, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. Right on the heels of that, and in the midst of that sort of populated city of wickedness comes this short phrase that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This could be the first recorded prayer meeting. Uh, All indications are that this is an organized gathering of people who intentionally come together to seek the Lord. And so in the face of great evil and wickedness, these godly men and women come together to seek the Lord. And it's interesting that we we have no record of them marching through the city of Enoch with flags and banners and protest signs. Uh, There are no marches, no boycotts, no political strategies. The only thing Scripture tells us is that in light of that great evil, we see a band of people gathering together to seek the Lord and to call upon His name. And it's not just um, people individually calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, it's a gathering. And, and let me unpack that just a little bit. The word that's used here has a depth of meaning that allows for a larger description than just individuals calling on the name of the Lord. It's a compound word, um, L-I-Q-R-O. I don't know how to say that in Hebrew, but we'll just say likro or likro or I don't know. Uh, but but this um, L-I is the prefix to do something and Q-R-O is to call upon or to proclaim, or to be identified in a group as belonging. And it has that range of meaning, this QRO word, uh, throughout the Old Testament and in other sources. Now, I want you to listen to how one commentary describes it. He says, A remarkable thing is recorded in connection with the birth of this boy. At that time, people began to gather together to worship God, to proclaim His name, and to pray. And he writes here that the Hebrew word translated call upon carries the meaning of one, praying in God's name. Number two, carries the meaning of proclaiming his name in worship. And number three, it can also be translated as men begin to um, call themselves as or by the name of the Lord. So this little word, this little phrase describes a worship service, a remnant of people meeting to praise God, to pray to Him for help, and to identify as people who bear His name. This is a remnant of people who in the face of great evil gather together as God's people. You've heard that phrase remnant in Scripture. Uh, most clearly defined in the book of Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet uh, before the Old Testament Closed and before the 400-year intertestamental period, uh, before John the Baptist and Jesus came. And Malachi had a hard message 
a really scathing message against the people of God at that time. They were um, shortchanging him in worship. They were bringing uh, wounded animals and the worst of their flock, and they were going kind of just going through the motions, robbing God, not giving of their tithes, not worshiping. Not um, Malachi had a very hard message, and at the end of his message, there's a record of people, and I'll just read it for you in Malachi chapter three verses 16 through 18. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord paid attention to them and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. That's a powerful sentence. Anytime the Lord looks upon a group of people, hears them, pays attention to them, and then it says the Lord wrote a book about them, Those are important things. And what does it say? It says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You see these remnants of those who fear God or those who esteem God or those who are separated from the crowd of people who don't. Jesus said even within a congregation like this, there will be weeds and wheat. There will be sheep and goats. Not everybody who goes to church is a believer. There is always a remnant of people within each congregation within each culture within each city within each population understand that god knows those who are his and that there will be a day of separation scripture promises it that there will be a day at the final harvest as jesus described it when those who gather the weeds and the wheat together or the sheep and the goats together will separate those who are from those who aren't It's this remnant of people that make up Seth's line. They're the ones who are calling upon the name of the Lord, who are gathering together, who fear the Lord, who are seeking the Lord, who are proclaiming the righteousness and the glory of God in this wicked time, in the wake of Cain's wicked civilization. It makes us ask, what is it that makes you stop and cry out to the Lord? Has there ever been a moment in your life where the circumstances that you found yourself in were just too overwhelming and too much for you to bear and in your own strength you couldn't handle it and you just cried out to God? What is it that triggers that? The loss of a dream? The loss of a relationship? The loss of any sort of hope in that in which you placed your hope? Is it a sense of helplessness or an affliction? A a health issue? Maybe a, a moral crisis? A financial crisis? What is it that causes you to call upon the name of the Lord in a sense of utter helplessness and weakness and desperation. 
Nothing short of that is required for salvation, by the way. When we are told in the Gospels to repent and believe, this sort of uh, process of salvation, this repenting and believing, really is that moment of utter surrender to the Lord. When we acknowledge that we can't be good enough, right? Our, Our righteous works aren't righteous enough. But there are other times in the life of a believer when we, when we get to a point where we cry out to God. <clears throat> Richard Owen Roberts, in one of my favorite books of all time, uh, one of my favorite authors of all time as well, but in his book Revival, uh, he describes a situation like what we might find here in, in Genesis 5 and 4. He says that when a band of earnest Christians comes together under the terrific burden of felt needs, then and not until then, will will there be a glimmer of revival hope before us. You see, revival and awakening are moments of an extraordinary move of God that has nothing to do with our thoughtfulness or our creativity or uh, our emotional worship, or anything that we could put together. A revival or an awakening. You see them all over Scripture, by the way. Um, They're those moments when God does something extraordinary in the face of a people who can't do anything more. And this is what's described right here in this little verse 26, in this little sentence. At that time, people began to gather together to proclaim the name of the Lord and to call upon the name of the Lord in the face of this great wickedness. I want you to take that question with you this week and think about what it is that makes you cry out to the Lord in prayer. I had a number of stories I could share, uh, but I'd be more interested in hearing from you. And so if you something comes to mind and you feel like you want to share it, I'd be glad to hear from you this week. Um, let's move on to verses uh, 12 here through the end of the chapter, and then I'll make a couple of summary statements. Chapter 5, verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Say that five times quickly, right? Uh, Verse 13, Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived, after he fathered Jared, 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived, after he fathered Enoch, 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, He fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. He died as a young man or was taken as a young man. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and then he was not for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Just 
store that verse away in some trivia because he is the oldest person recorded living in Scripture, Methuselah. You may have heard your grandmother or somebody say is as old as Methuselah or some statement like that. That's where it comes from. Uh, Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What we have in this chapter, this long list of faithful family names in Seth's godly line listed here. And a few of these names, like I mentioned earlier, show up in Luke chapter 3, and they're a part of Jesus' genealogy. Um, And I want you to think about, whenever you see a genealogy, that each name is this link in the redemptive line that will ultimately lead to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Jesus. And and that helps us understand that that when Moses is recording this some 1,000 to 2,000 years later, what he's writing uh, is really um, to the children of Israel as they've been delivered from Egypt and are about to go into the promised land and for us afterward. But, But there's a direct context. And so God wasn't telling us everything that we want to know about the pre-flood world or about these lines or about these other sons and daughters and all these other things. He's just telling what we need to know in order to understand the messianic and redemptive promise that's coming. There are faithful men and women who are listed in these genealogies who fear the Lord and they serve Him in their generation. Um, Warren Wearsby calls them living links in the great generational chain that reached from Seth to the birth of Jesus Christ, noting that God's promise in Genesis 3.15 could have never been fulfilled or written up were it not for the faithfulness of many undistinguished people who to us are only strange names in an ancient genealogy. I think that's uh, kind of inspiring. Maybe maybe kind of in a boring theological way, but, but it's kind of inspiring in that Really, that's kind of you and I, right? I don't think 500 years from now, many people are going to be naming their kids after us. Maybe they will, but in just a couple of generations, we might be forgotten. And that's okay. It's okay that we don't have to live some ambitious life, that that, um, we accomplish some incredible thing. It is enough for you and I to aspire to be faithful. And really, to in some way, be unnamed and unknown and to pass on this legacy of faith and following Jesus humbly and faithfully. The New Testament uh, describes ambition as a, a disastrous thing. That many people who are selfishly ambitious, Philippians 2 and, and also in Hebrews, you look up that word ambition in Scripture and it's, it's not always a good picture. But there is something we should aspire to, and that is simple faithfulness, like these generations here. But I want you to see a couple of other things um, uh, in this passage as we close here. Uh, I want you to see that, that each name listed has the grim ending, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. 
Each one of us will have that same description unless the Lord should return during our lifetime. I know that's not a very happy thought for a summer Sunday, but, um, but if we think biblically about death, it can be a corrective to the way the world thinks about death. For the believer, death is going home. Isaiah wrote, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Paul told us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had a struggle here, a real tension, because not because he was suicidal or anything, but Paul wanted to die. I mean, for him, he said to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And he said in, in another place, it's, it's necessary for me to continue on here, but I would really, if I'm being honest, I would much rather die and go to heaven, right? How many of you have felt that way before? Don't raise your hand. I don't want anybody to worry about us. But, but there are moments in our life, not out of sadness or depression or the difficulty of our circumstances, but just out of an overflow of glory and worship and joy in our relationship in the Lord, that it overflows in this desire that, that what we're experiencing here and now is not enough. I can't wait to be with you. That kind of a sentiment. Paul struggled with this. Because he loved Jesus so much that he couldn't wait to go home and be with him. It also helps that he saw multiple levels of heaven, right? According to 2 Corinthians, he knew a man who once went to the third level. I think if you had those sort of visions, it would sort of fuel that desire as well. But, but death in Scripture for the believer is, is a homegoing. It is a, it is a completion of the salvation process. It's called glorification. And it's a wonderful thing for the believer. For those who are left behind, it's a sad thing, of course, but we grieve, but we grieve not as those who don't have hope. But I I say that to you because if you're in Christ, uh, your views toward death should almost be an anticipation of something glorious rather than something to fear. That's a unique feature of, for born-again believers is not walking around with a fear of death. And I know that some people have that and, and they're working through that, but by and large, the believer has a glorious expectation. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. Focus on the passages in the New Testament especially that describe the, the coming future world and the glory that will be revealed in Christ and our salvation. Dwell on Ephesians 1 and Revelation and and other great passages, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, that describe the end times and the coming of the Lord, and, and especially Revelation 20 through 22, really things that will fuel an upward gaze that help us deal with the reality of death in this life. But you probably caught me here because not everyone in this passage died, did they? Who in this list didn't die? Yeah, it was Enoch. Enoch didn't die. Enoch is one of two men in the Bible who didn't physically die, but were bodily uh, raptured up to heaven. Can you name the other one? Elijah, you guys are are smart. Um, Enoch is one of two men in the Bible who didn't die. Elijah, both Enoch and Elijah were taken alive into heaven. And if you want to read about Elijah, you can find it in 2 Kings chapter 2. Why didn't Enoch die? Why didn't he experience death like the rest of us? The Bible doesn't particularly tell us 
But we have a few clues about his life uh, that, that help us understand. Let me name three, and, uh, and then we'll close about Enoch here. Number one, we see that after the birth of Methuselah, when Enoch was 65, he began to walk with the Lord. Something changed for this young father. Right? Anybody 65 or older? Right? Enoch was um, 65 when he fathered Methuselah. And it, we have an indication here that he previously had not walked with God. But something happened. There, it seems like there was a bit of a conversion experience. And I think having children can do that for you, doesn't it? Right? You come to the end of yourself a little bit when you have kids and you realize that everything in their existence, their tiny vulnerable life, God has given them to you. And, and you wake up and you realize, I've got I've to take care of this little life. And it makes you get a little bit more serious in your faith. That seems to be Enoch's story here. It says that once Methuselah was born at age 65, Enoch walked with God. One commentary describes walking with God. Uh, Noah is described as walking with God. Enoch, Micah 6.8 gives us a glimpse into this as well. It says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Walking with God is not some activity reserved for uh, just a few people. God desires all of His children to walk with Him. And it reminds us of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with His two disciples the morning of His resurrection. And as He's walking with them, they're talking together and the two disciples are sharing their sadness and their concerns about Jesus' death and the report of the empty tomb. Jesus walks with them and He talks with them and He teaches them and He instructs them and He tells them all the Scriptures in the Old Testament concerning Himself. And these things give us an indication of what it means to walk with God. It is to have a sense of continuous and intimate fellowship with God. That's what it means for you. That's what it means for me, is that moment by moment, day by day, it's as though in the morning when we wake up, we pick up a phone. This this shows that I'm old because I remember picking up a phone like this, right? And dialing the number. Of course, some of you remember the party line. And, uh. But starting a conversation with God and throughout the day sort of leaving that line open and cultivating these loving responses with God throughout the day. It could be moments of worship. could be moments of prayer. could be moments of confession. could be moments of repentance. could be a time of singing. could be a time of reading Scripture and seeking God through that, but this sort of continual, daily, loving and obedient responses to God throughout the day, done day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, is how you define walking with God. Uh, I think it was Stu Weber, Greg Gregoire will correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a long obedience in the same direction as what somebody wrote. It's a good description for walking with God. But maybe the most important aspect of walking with God is faith. And we see that in Enoch's life. In in Hebrews, Enoch makes the hall of faith, right? Many people call Hebrews 11 the hall of faith. 
listing all these people who lived by faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, Enoch has two verses dedicated to him. And I want you to listen to these two verses. Hebrews 11, 5 through 6, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And so these are where these threads come together. Walking with God by faith and being pleasing to God. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You need to know that about Enoch, is that Enoch didn't just live some sort of self-righteous, moralistic, legalistic... He didn't walk in his own self-righteousness. Enoch walked... By faith, trusting in God, surrendered to God, and his faith excelled so much that it pleased God completely. He lived a life believing and trusting in God. And that's an indication of why he was taken bodily without death. Does that mean that everyone who lives by faith will not experience death? No. Uh, there could be some deeper meaning here with Enoch and Elijah. One commentator says that some students see at Enoch's pre-flood rapture a picture of the church being taken to heaven before God sends a great tribulation on the earth and that the pre-flood Enoch was raptured before the flood just as the church might be raptured before the seven-year tribulation. There could be some of that in here as well. But ultimately, it's a bit of a mystery as to why Enoch is taken. But we can see these things about his life. He walked with God and he walked by faith. And this is the first characteristic of being pleasing to God and as being counted among his people. You will not be counted among God's people if you don't believe. Jesus came preaching, repent and and believe. John the Baptist came preaching, repent and believe. And this isn't just some new development in the New Testament. In Genesis 15, 6, God made all these promises to Abraham before there was ever a law to follow, so there was no legalism. Before there was ever a law to follow, God made these promises to Abraham, and Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see that? There's an exchange. He believed And God transferred righteousness into, as it were, Abraham's account. Salvation has always been by faith. Salvation is today by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not in any work that you could accomplish on your own. Now that's hard news for some of you to hear. Because you have a long list of righteous deeds that you've done, and you're counting on that list. You're counting on walking up and saying, God, this is what I did to earn salvation. But Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will go to heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And the will of the Father in heaven is that we would believe in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus continued in that passage and he said, um, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons and do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will look at them and he will say, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. I mean, that's Jesus talking to religious looking people who failed to believe. Some of Jesus' harshest words and his greatest enemies were religious people. Just read Matthew 23, right? Jesus said on the outside, they look great, like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Bless you. It's not enough for you to be a good person. Do you understand? Salvation is by grace through faith in a good person, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is good. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the good news of the gospel. Is that I don't have to earn my righteousness. Jesus Christ gives it when I put my faith in Him. That's a beautiful thing to rest in the grace of God. Isn't it? Don't you like that? That burden is lifted that you don't have to please God in any other way than just by believing Hebrews 11.6 says it's impossible to please God without believing. All right, let's get back to Enoch. The third thing about him is found in Jude, uh, verses 14 through 15. Enoch makes a couple of cameos in Hebrews 11 and then also in Jude 14 through 15. And in Jude 14 through 15, we get another glimpse into the life of Enoch. It says that um, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's ungodly four times in one verse. Jude tells us in that two-verse span that Enoch's faith and his walk with God was far from just some personal thing that he kept to himself. Enoch was a, a vocal prophet who preached. I mean, he, he probably preached hard. And Enoch called the wicked people of his day to faith, to believe, to fear the Lord and to walk with Him. He preached on righteousness and judgment and against ungodliness, and he was vocal. And he did, did it so much so that the sum total of his last 300 years not counting his first 65, but the last 300 years, in such a way pleased God that God just removed him. Just picked him up and moved him. He and Elijah only. And so those give us some insight into why Enoch was so pleasing to God. But it it encourages us in this application point. Are you known as somebody who walks with the Lord Would somebody write on your tombstone, here lies so-and-so, date to date, he or she walked with the Lord? You may not have a lot of letters behind your name, and you may not have a lot of accomplishments and a lot of paper on the wall behind your desk. But I think one of the greatest things that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can hear about you is that you walked with the Lord. I think a person who walks with the Lord over a lifetime 
day in, day out, week by week, month by month, year by year. That's a person that deserves an, uh, our honor and our esteem. And that's a, that's a generation legacy changer. And they may just be one chain and a long link of people who have to walk by faith in their own generation. But I want you to think about that. I want you to think about this week, not just what causes you to call upon the Lord, uh, but the second thing I wanted you to think about is, are you known as somebody who walks with the Lord? I think if we're honest, Christ follower, there may be seasons of yes and seasons of no and seasons of eh, sort of. Right? We kind of go through hills and valleys and ups and downs and peak moments and then moments where we might coast more than we wish we did. But it's never too late to start walking with God. And if you've backslidden or if you've struggled or if your faith is teetering, this might be a great week, a great day for you to walk with the Lord. At the end of our passage here, verses 28 through 32, we learn about Noah and uh, we're introduced to him. And in the coming weeks, I'll have a lot more to say about Noah. But for today, understand the godly line of Seth, a deliverer, was born, a type of deliverer. But this wouldn't be the capital M Messiah, the one who would stomp the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. Noah is a type of Messiah, but not the Messiah. And as we look into Noah over the next few weeks, I want you to see the shadows that cast long into Christ. But for now, let us benefit from the lessons of Enoch and Enosh. Lord Jesus, we thank you for their examples that at that time people began to gather and to call upon your name and to proclaim your name. And in the face of great evil, there was a remnant of believers. We might even have fellowship with them today. They may not look too much different from us and some of their qualities and characteristics of those who fear the Lord. There is a difference in those who know you and those who don't, and you delight in making that distinction, as we heard in Malachi 3. You delight in showing those who are yours that they will shine in radiance with the peace that they have, with the way they die, with the way they suffer, with the way they love, with the way they forgive, with the way they give grace. There's just something different about someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, and a genuine, sincere follower of Jesus. Let it be said of us that not only do we know you, but we walk with you. That we proclaim you and that our life can be defined as those who call upon your name within the congregation and who proclaim your name in our culture. And let us be faithful, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are the ultimate one who brings relief from our works because you completed the ultimate work of redemption at the cross. And we thank you for that. And we want to sing about that today. In Jesus' name, amen.